Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become faint. Father, we love you. You are the great Redeemer as you've revealed yourself through your holy inspired word and through the living word, Jesus Christ. We come today and we offer you our praise and our gratitude for having saved us on your sheer mercy. Speak to those who are listening who will later hear this message through the internet or some other medium, and use the words that are preached today, your word which is alive, sharper than a two-edged sword, to bring the lost into salvation and those who are saved into a deeper, more consistent, faithful walk with you. Father, without you I can do nothing, but with you all things are possible, so I ask that you come and fill me and empower me today, not just here, but later today as we have Meet the Pastor in Grays and in Beaufort, May you work as you are only able to work, and I ask it for the glory of Jesus and in his holy name, amen. Take God's word, would you? Revelation chapter 21. If this is your first Sunday here with us, you'll be interested to know that we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the book of Revelation, and we've covered a lot of ground in this amazing book. We saw it in the opening chapter where God gave us a glimpse of the risen, glorified Christ watching over and overseeing His church. And then we were introduced in chapters 2 and 3 to seven specific churches, and Christ delivered a personal letter to each one, each church that are certainly representative of the condition of any church in any generation. And these letters were delivered to each church so that Those who needed to be rebuked would be rebuked, and those who needed to be encouraged would be encouraged. Then in chapter 4, we saw a door opened in heaven as the church is caught up and raptured. And in the fourth and fifth chapter, we heard the first songs of heaven as millions of angels, along with the redeemed, gave their praise to the living God. Then in chapter 6, we're introduced to the four horsemen of the apocalypse, We saw them trotting across the earth with the judgments that they brought, and they opened a series of 21 judgments that came through seals, trumpets, and bowls, a time that is unprecedented in all of human history yet to happen. Jesus said it will be the worst time that the world will ever see uh, in all of human history, an unprecedented time of judgment. And one of the functions of the tribulation is to bring Israel to faith but also to give the gospel to those who have never heard the gospel in clarity and power before. And so those many hearing the gospel for the very first time, for there are no second chances after the rapture. You think, well, I'll get saved after the rapture if I miss it. No, not according to Second Thessalonians. You will not believe. The Scripture says if you heard the truth prior, but you suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, but there will be millions of people across the world who will give their life to Christ during this seven-year period, and many will die. They will refuse to take the mark of the beast, and the typical form of execution will be beheading. 
And so we saw this one world leader with his one world government as he braggingly, brazenly, brashly, boldly steps onto the planet and leads the world into wickedness and sin like the world has never seen it before. But in the 17th and 18th chapters, after the bull, seal, and trumpet judgments are over, recorded in 6 through 16, in 17 and 18, we begin to see his one-world government and his one-world religion collapse. And then in the 19th chapter, we studied how Jesus will literally, physically, physically, visibly return to the earth. He will get rid of the Antichrist and his false prophet, whom the Bible says are thrown alive into the lake that burns with brimstone. And then in chapter 20, Satan, who has had free to wage war against people for thousands of years, for the first time will be refined during the reign of the Messiah. The reign of the Messiah is taught in the Old Testament. The length of it being a thousand years is a New Testament truth. And we learned why the millennial kingdom was important. You know, why not just end it all and take everyone to heaven? And we looked at six specific reasons why God is going to have a millennial kingdom. But then we saw after the millennial kingdom is over, right at the end of that kingdom, at the end of that thousand years, there'll be one final rebellion. You see, those who enter into the millennial reign of Jesus, who have survived the great tribulation period, will enter, unlike you, they will enter in their natural bodies, and they will live for approximately a thousand years, and they will have children and grandchildren and great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren, and the whole earth will be repopulated. And yet, though there is a perfect climate, so to speak, though the animal kingdom is in harmony with man, Though people live long lives like before the great flood in great health, and while just law is being executed by Christ himself who rules and reigns with a rod of iron, you'd think people would fall down on their face and worship him. But not all will. And so at the end of the thousand years, Satan, who has been locked up, will be loosed, and he will tempt millions of people across the planet who never gave their life to Christ and they will amass another battle against Jesus, and in a moment's time, He will extinguish them. Fire will come down from heaven, and the armies of Satan, along with the devil himself, will be cast into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. That brought us to where we were last time in the last paragraph of chapter 20, where we studied the great white throne judgment. And we saw that at that great white throne, all of the lost people of all time will be amassed and brought before the Lord, where He will deal with them and judge them according to their deeds. Their deeds will show that they never believed, and according to His justice, there will be punishment ministered based on their deeds. Now, that brings us to where we are today. We come now to the final theme in this great book, and it deals with primarily the theme of heaven, almost two chapters spent on the subject of heaven. Now, many people today cannot conceive of anything greater that could happen than, say, what God did during the Exodus or when God brought a worldwide flood across the planet. They can't conceive of anything bigger than that, maybe the most the judgments that come upon the earth during the tribulation. But we haven't seen anything yet. 
even the great flood, even the coming tribulation period, they all pale compared to what God is about to do. He is going to take, right before the great white throne judgment, the current heavens and earths as you see it, and in a moment's time, they're going to be gone. And somewhere in outer space, he will bring all the lost of all time for a final judgment. And when that judgment is complete, God is going to speak a new heaven and a new earth into existence. It's going to be one of the most dramatic events that you could ever, ever, ever imagine. Now, I need to tell you parenthetically and up front that very often passages that deal with the millennial reign of Messiah are used descriptively to tell you what heaven is like. And there are a lot of popular books that have come out in the last few years on heaven that do that very thing. And the reason they take the passages that deal with the millennial reign of Christ and describe those as being heaven is because they don't believe in a millennial reign. They are replacement theologians. They believe there is no future for the nation of Israel. But we're going to see that while there are certainly some parallels between the earth and what it will be like during the reign of the Savior, there are many dramatic and distinct differences between the two. But due to the vast biblical illiteracy in our day, many just take these popular books on heaven at face value. But in the next few months, I think I'll preach at least four, maybe five sermons on the subject of heaven, maybe another eight sermons here in the Revelation. But a number of them on heaven, you will find out what heaven is really like. I won't say that I'll answer all your questions. I can only answer what the Scripture has said, but a lot of your questions will indeed be answered. Now, to be able to appreciate chapters 21 and 22... We have to have a biblical theology of earth. You will never be able to embrace the significance of Revelation 21.1 unless you can understand the significance of Genesis chapter 1. Now today I'm going to preach just on one verse. That will be our focus here from the Revelation, but I want to begin by reading the first eight verses, so follow along in your Bible, if you will. Genesis, I mean, excuse me, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son." But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. 
Uh, there's a note-taking outline there in your bulletin if you're with us for the first time. Again, the subject of this morning's message is a biblical theology of earth. And understand, everyone has some kind of theology in every realm. Even the atheist has a theology about God. He says there is no God. That's his theology. The agnostic has a theology about God. He says, I don't know if there's a God. And there are different realms of theology that Christians study. And you have a theology of earth. The question is, is it accurate? Is it biblical? Is it consistent to what God has revealed? So to help us to think our way through this subject today, I want to compare and contrast Revelation 21 and verse 1 with chapter 1 of Genesis. So there in your outline, let's first consider the second earth that God will create, the second earth that God is going to create. The verse opens, then I saw. We've seen that phrase all the way through the Revelation. And every time you see it, it signals to us a new section, a new subject that God is about to introduce. The great white throne is over, then I saw. And so chronologically, what happens in this chapter follows the thousand-year reign of Christ. It's after the great white throne. It is after the current heavens and earth are destroyed, and God is getting ready to make a new one. Now, Second Peter chapter 3 tells us that the current heaven and earth will in a moment violently terminate and God will make a new heaven and a new earth. Listen to these words, 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which, not at which, there's a big difference, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. That's what we studied when we were in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. If you look back on the page, we were informed that earth and heaven fled away. When God judges the loss of all time, He first destroys the current earth and heaven. And again, somewhere, wherever it is, before His throne, the loss of all time are gathered. So with the old earth gone, verse 1 reads, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. So before there can be a new earth and a new heaven, before that can appear, the old one must disappear. The original creation has been spoiled by sin. There is unrighteousness in it. And so God is going to make a new creation. And there are three aspects of this new earth that I want us to think about this morning. Number one, the second earth created will be brand new. God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and the second earth that will be created will be brand new. Now, the reason I bring that up is because occasionally you will hear someone say that the old heaven and the old earth are just going to be renovated. They're just going to be fixed up and made a little bit nicer, and that's where the capital city, the New Jerusalem, will come down and sit on. No, that's not true. Now, if your loved one dies today, and we'll spend a lot of messages looking at the New Jerusalem called the Father's House, about six or seven different titles for what we typically refer to as heaven, that's just the capital city. God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and then out of heaven where your loved ones are who know Jesus, that city is going to come down and it is literally physically going to sit on a new earth as we're going to study. But some think God is just going to fix up the current earth. And again, these are amillennialists, so they twist a lot of scriptures because they don't 
take the plain reading of Scripture, but they'll take a verse even out of the Gospels like Matthew 19 and verse 28 to support this view. Let me read it to you. And Jesus said to them, he's talking to the apostles, truly I say to you that you have, you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But the regeneration has nothing to do with the new heaven and the new earth. It has everything to do with the millennium. And so we have already studied that there will be a facelift that will be given to this current earth when Jesus rules on the throne of David. We looked at a number of Old Testament passages. We saw how a baby will be able to play next to a cobra's nest and not be harmed, how the lion and the wolf will lay down next to each other and even the lamb. That's the time when Jesus will sit on his glorious throne, when Messiah will rule and reign. That is a time that is often spoken of by the Old Testament prophets. But here I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth passed away. Clearly, this is totally new. And the additional statement, the first heaven and the first earth passed away, puts a nail in the coffin to any kind of a facelift job for the eternal place that we will live at. Now, if you're not sure, though, of someone's explanation when you read many of these popular books on heaven, let Scripture interpret Scripture. But the idea of a new earth with a new atmosphere is a theme that runs in both the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and in the New Testament. For instance, Isaiah 65, it's a chapter that describes life after the reign of Messiah on the earth. And there, Isaiah 65, 17 tells us, for behold, I create, God says, new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Now, interestingly, the Spirit of God who gave every word of Scripture uses the word created here identically to the word that he gives Moses to write in Genesis 1-1, bara. The word bara, create, means to create Ex nihilo, that is to create out of nothing. This is not some fix-up job. This is not some refashioning. This is a brand new heaven and earth. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 102. God promised, of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. Jesus made it crystal clear of a new creation when he said this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. God tells us that heaven and earth are going to pass away, and he's going to explain how. Listen to this verse in 2 Peter chapter 3. We are told that we are to be looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord because of, because of which the heavens will be destroyed. You see that word destroyed? It's used outside of the Bible in common or Koine Greek of something that's dissolved. Something that is dissolved is gone. The current heavens and earth will be destroyed. How? By burning. And the elements will melt with intense heat. People say, do you believe in climate change? I believe in a whole lot more than climate change. I believe in a total meltdown, not some remake. He adds, but according to his promise, 
We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And Peter, by the way, uses the identical word for new that John the Apostle uses here in Revelation 21 when he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And it's a Greek word, kainos, that means new, both in kind and in time. It speaks of something that is fresh, something that is brand new. And it's worth noting here that the new heaven that is mentioned here is not the place your loved ones are at this morning. Remember, in the Bible, there are three heavens that are described. The first heaven is the atmosphere above, what we call the blue sky. The second heaven is outer space, the night sky, where the stars are and the sun and the moon and all the planets. But then there's the third heaven. That's the Father's house. That's the new Jerusalem. That's where the Lord is. Paul was caught up into the third heaven, and he had a vision. If he was not literally actually there, he said, I'm not sure which one. It was so real. And so when he speaks here of a new heaven, he's referring to a new blue sky, a new night sky, and a brand new earth. And this will happen after the millennial reign of Christ. So this place, this new earth that God is going to begin to describe in these chapters is a place where we will ultimately spend eternity. Here in Revelation 21, time is over as we know it, and eternity is about to begin. And of this new earth, the first aspect of this second earth that will be created, it will be, number one, brand new. I had to fix my car recently, and I went into the auto parts store and said, look, you can save about 50%. If you get the rebuilt part, I said, I don't want to rebuild. He says, it's guaranteed for life. Yeah, I know it is, but if I spend five hours putting it in, yeah, I have to come back and get my free part to do it all over again. I said, I want something brand new. I don't want to rebuild. Look, God's not going to give you some rebuilt earth. He's going to create a brand new earth in which righteousness dwells. Second, the second earth created will be different from the first. It will be different from the first. And again, this totally unravels the amillennialists in our day in many of these popular books on heaven. Then I saw, again in verse 1, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, amazingly, a small amount of information is given to us in the Bible concerning the new heaven and the new earth, but a ton of information. I will spend four, maybe five sermons, I'm not sure exploring the New Jerusalem, and rightly so if you think about it, because for 2,000 years, Christians have asked, what's it like when my loved one goes on? What are they doing today? What does it feel like? What does it look like? John is going to answer a lot of those questions for us, very, very specific. But he does tell us enough about this new heaven and this new earth to let you know that it is different. He adds here at the end of the verse, there was no longer any sea. Now, again, these popular books on heaven, they blur the millennial kingdom passages of the Old Testament with the future heaven that God has. But you can't do that. For instance, the fact that there is a millennium, those are not just bonus chapters that, well, Israel, because they've been replaced by the church, God's not going to fulfill any of them. No, He's going to keep every prophecy that He made. Some of you were with me a few weeks ago down at the Dead Sea, and you saw these big blocks of salt just washed up on the edge of the shore. 
It's a salty, 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 salty sea. It's called the salt sea in the Bible, the dead sea in the Bible. Absolutely nothing can live in it. Well, the prophet Ezekiel in the 47th and 48th chapter tell us a day is coming when it will be fresh, when men will fish in it and they'll dry their nets along the seashore. That will literally actually physically be fulfilled. That's a millennium passage, yet in those same chapters, they try to draw out principles of heaven. Well, if you're going to be consistent, let's draw out every principle that's found in those chapters. Here the text says there was no longer any sea. That's a huge contrast between the present earth because three-quarters of this earth is covered by salt water. Now, this does not mean there won't be freshwater lakes or freshwater beaches with waves or anything like that, but what it does mean is that the sea will not be like it is today. And I suspect that since seawater, salt water corrodes, and it's probably a result of the fall, that God will create a new heaven and a new earth without the sea as we know it. At this point, though, concerning this new earth, that's about all he tells us. He gives us a little snippet of information concerning the new heaven, When you come down to 21, 23, he tells us there'll be no sun or moon, and by implication, no stars. So, in your biblical theology of the world that is yet to be created, it will be brand new. Secondly, it will be different from the first. Third, the second earth created will be made in a moment's time. It will be made in a moment's time. Again, all of a sudden, The current heaven and earth are gone, and then John immediately sees, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, because the first one had passed away. What is happening here brings real problems for those people who want to say that the first earth was made over eons of time, and there are many Christians today who are espousing that. But when you look at this new creation, it's not there one second. It's there in the next. If God needed millions or for some billions of years to create the first earth, how is he going to create the second earth in a matter of seconds? For that matter, if God needed millions of years to evolve you into a fully human form, then how will God in the twinkling of an eye change you and give you a brand new body suited to walk on streets of gold. Listen, Genesis 1-1 and Revelation 21-1, they dovetail together. And that's why we're just going to do one verse today, because if you don't get Revelation 21-1 and the theological implications as it relates to Genesis 1-1, you won't understand the rest of the chapter on heaven. So take your Bible and turn all the way back to the book of Genesis. I looked it up this morning. I didn't realize it was so long ago. Ten years ago, last month, we were in Genesis chapter 1. And I spent, I think, two years preaching all the way through the book of Genesis. So this is new for a lot of you, and it's a needed refreshment maybe for the rest of you. Secondly, I want you to see that the first earth that God did create So there's the second earth that God will create. The second point on your outline concerns the first earth that God has already created. And again, if you misinterpret the creation account in Genesis, then I can promise you, you will misinterpret the second creation that is going to be described in these two chapters of the Revelation. 
But sadly today, we have Christian people who embrace what is called theistic evolution. Now, I get it concerning the Pope. Past popes have taught theistic evolution. And this current pope, more aggressively than any, has been pushing theistic evolution. One year ago today, he had a conference called the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. It was a four-day meeting, and the theme was entitled Evolving Concepts of Nature. And he wrote this as a result of the meeting, and I quote the current pope. When we read the account of creation in Genesis, we risk thinking that God was a magician, complete with all-powerful magic, with an all-powerful magic wand. But that was not so. He created living beings, and then he let them develop according to the internal laws with which he endowed each one, that they might develop and reach their fullness. The Big Bang Theory, which is proposed today as the origin of the world, does not contradict the intervention of a divine creator, but depends upon it. Evolution in nature does not conflict with the notion of creation because evolution presupposes the creation of beings that evolve. This is what we call theistic evolution. He's not ascribing to pure evolution the Big Bang Theory, but what he is saying is that it's like taking a magic wand to take Genesis 1 at face value, that that's not how God created the world, but God was behind the Big Bang, and he used the process of evolution to create this world. God created the first life, and then he used the process of evolution to bring it to where we are today. Now, forget the Pope. I get the Pope why he can make some statements like that, because he doesn't believe in sola scriptura. Someone asked me last week, is that Spanish? No, that's Latin. Sola alone, scriptura. Scripture alone for evangelical Bible-believing Christians, at least as the definition was traditionally given, believe that the Bible alone is our final and sole authority. So I get why the Pope, who has authority beyond Scripture, that he argues is on the same level of Scripture, I can see why he would come up with that. And I can see why liberal Protestants who deny the authority of the Bible would come up with evolution. But why would anyone who calls themselves an evangelical Christian say that they embrace theistic evolution? Tim Keller, he is a popular Christian apologist in our day. He wrote these words, and I quote, Genesis 1 does not teach that God made the world in six 24-hour days. I don't believe you have to take Genesis 1 as a literal account. I am not arguing something so crude as if you, if you don't believe in a literal Adam and Eve, then you don't believe in the authority of the Bible. I contended above that we cannot take every text in the Bible literally, but the key for interpretation is the Bible itself. I don't believe Genesis 1 can be taken literally because I don't think the author expected us to. Well, let me first say that those who believe in a literal grammatical historical interpretation recognize that there are similes and figures of speech and so on. And when we understand what the symbol means, then we literally believe it. We don't believe that Satan is a literal red dragon, but we understand what the picture is there, then we literally believe that aspect about Satan's character. Well, there's nothing in the Genesis account that would lead us to believe that we shouldn't take it any other way than its plain literal reading. 
and what Tim Keller, when Tim Keller, they wanted, some people wanted to use his book over a decade ago in our church. And I said, no, not as long as I'm the pastor. I'm called to guard and protect the flock. And why would I want young minds soiled by a so-called Christian apologist who undermines the historicity of the opening chapters of Genesis? Look, if Genesis 1 is not true, what else is not true? If you have to allegorize Genesis 1, what else do you need to allegorize? And so it's sheer heresy, I think, to advocate that Genesis 1 is not true and that God used the process of evolution to create the world. You say, well, Pastor Carl, does it really matter? Can't a person be a good Christian, as Tim Keller advocates, and still believe in theistic evolution? And I would say no, because you are distorting the Scripture. He is today what we call an example of progressive Christianity. Now, you may be thinking, hey, wait a minute now. He sold millions of books to the evangelical church. Could he really be that far off? Or Rachel Held Evans and Jan Hatmaker, two women Bible teachers that some women years ago wanted to use in this church, I said, not on your life. They said, what's wrong with them? I said, I don't know fully what's wrong with them, but I know enough is wrong with them that we're not going to use them in this church. Now, they sold millions of books, became very wealthy people on the backs of evangelicals on Lifeway books, a conservative Southern Baptist press. But even Lifeway has removed those two authors. Why? Because both espouse and endorse gay marriage. And by the way, Tim Keller, the so-called Christian apologist, has now endorsed living out, living out as a ministry for, quote-unquote, gay Christians. And he gives a frank, open endorsement on their website. Let me tell you what Living Out says on their website. They write, and I quote, to show how, this is the purpose of their ministry, to show how you can be same-sex attracted and at the same time thrive as a Christian and to repudiate all attitudes and actions which victimize or diminish people whose affections are directed toward people of the same sex. Now, let me just say parenthetically, we love homosexual people here, and they are welcome to our church. We want to win sinners, and we have people in both services who have come out of that background whom God has made a new creature in whom he has transformed. But homosexuality, you're not made that way. God didn't create you that way. If God made you that way, then God could not hold you morally accountable where he can say such things, don't be deceived, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, and on, shall inherit the kingdom of God. The next verse says, and such were some of you. So I want to tell Nancy Pelosi, it is hate speech on her part. For her and some of her Democratic friends, and I'm sure there's some Republicans in the mix too, who say that people like me are homophobic and our tax-exempt status should be taken away. I said that 10 years ago. People laughed at me. Now we're hearing it on this new platform of people who say, no, you want to teach that? Teach it. Believe it. Free speech. But we're going to punish you. 
And so Tim Keller sends pastors like me an email across the country where we're supposed to take this living out audit to see if our church is gay-friendly. And so he is now arguing for gay Christians. And by that he means, like many others, Sam Alberry and a number of others, that you can have same-sex attraction feelings for someone and be right in the center of God's will, that you should actually embrace those feelings. Just don't act on them. That's the argument. By the way, that's what Hatmaker and the others were saying, and now they endorse full-blown gay marriage. It's a slippery slope. Listen, the feelings of wanting to have a relationship with someone of the same gender are not morally neutral feelings any more than some man who's heterosexual, whose heart is filled with lust towards a woman to whom he's not married. Those are feelings that need to be brought under the authority and the sanctifying work of God the Holy Spirit. But listen, if Tim Keller doesn't embrace Genesis 1-1, then why should he embrace Genesis 1-27 when God says he created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them? Now here's what Pat Robinson said just six months ago, and I quote, you know, this universe that we live in is about 14 billion years old, and there's no question about it. And we have tremendous geological records and all the rest of it. And that 6,000-year-old stuff just doesn't compute, but we as Christians, we need to know the truth. Then wanting to counter those who teach what the Scripture plainly says, he adds, well, the truth is, is that dinosaurs were extinct maybe about 50 billion years ago. Now, I'm not sure what he means by that. He just said the world was 14 billion years old. But in this planet has been around much longer than that. And there was a course that they were trying to hustle around called creation science. And that is just nonsense. And it was so embarrassing that we wanted to make sure that we told the truth. Now, I appreciate Ken Ham's response to what Pat Robinson said on national TV. Ken Ham said, it's not those of us who take God at his word who are embarrassing. It's the other way around. Those like Pat Robinson who adopt man's pagan religion, which includes elements like evolutionary geology based on naturalism and atheism, and add to that God's word, uh, that say that God's word in the creation account is destructive to the church. This compromise un undermines the authority of the infallible Word of God. Buying into the world's godless teaching is a major reason why there has been and continues to be an exodus from the church of the younger generations. And then he adds, such leaders, including Pat Robertson, have a lot to answer to to the Lord someday. Such leaders are guilty of putting stumbling blocks in the way of kids and adults in regard to believing God's word and the gospel. Oh, that God would convict and open the eyes of Christian leaders in Christian college and seminary professors, so many of whom are as uninformed and deceived as Pat Robinson. And I say to Ken Ham, amen. He is absolutely correct. What Pat Robertson is doing is evil, and it undermines the opening verses, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Then it says in verse 2, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So as we consider 
how we are to look at the creation account where we are faithful to what God has revealed in Scripture, understand that there are basically three positions that people are taking today. So let me cover these. The first we call the gap theory. And they argue that between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, the two verses I just read, that there's a huge gap of time. And so first on your outline, it is false to teach that God created using a gap of time. Is that true? Did God create using a gap of time? And I would say no, and I would say that based on what God has revealed. So this is what the gap theory says, that God created a fully functional earth with all of the animals, including dinosaurs, something they argue that you cannot know from the Bible, but only from the fossil record. And then they go on to say that between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 2, after God created the heavens and the earth and the animals that were on it, that Satan rebelled, and so the earth became void and formless, and that during this gap, there are billions of years, and then God went and did kind of a remake and fixed up the current creation as we have it. And that's how they are able to dovetail science that says the world is billions of years old with the record that we find in Genesis. So they argue that something happened between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, and they say what created this big mess was the fall of Satan. There's real problems with that, again, when you let Scripture interpret Scripture. For instance, in Job chapter 38, Job records this, God asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. What supports its foundations? And who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars, one of the terms for angels in the Bible, as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. So we know before God laid the foundations of the world that the angels were already in existence. Therefore, Satan could not have fallen before the creation because he was spoken of by the prophet Ezekiel as being in the Garden of Eden. Let me read it to you from Ezekiel chapter 28, one of two chapters that describe how Lucifer became Satan. In Ezekiel 28, you're in Eden, the Garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. You were, anoint, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. So here was Lucifer. We think of that as an evil name. That was actually his pre-fall name, means the shining one. Here was Lucifer, the anointed cherub, unfallen in the Garden of Eden, which shoots major holes in the gap theories if you think your way through this. Satan's fall had to have occurred sometimes after the angels sang for joy because at the end of the creation, God said everything that he made was good. Everything that he made was good. Now, we don't know precisely when Satan fell, but I think we can safely say that it happened sometime after the creation of the world, not in eternity past, because in Ezekiel chapter 28, in his pre-fallen state, he's in Eden, the garden of God. So it totally eliminates his so-called gap theory. Listen to 
to make up some theory between Genesis 1 and Genesis, Genesis 1 1 and Genesis 1 2 is ridiculous for several reasons. Number one, to me, it is inconceivable. It's inconceivable if something this important had occurred between these two verses and God just never told us. I don't think so. God would not have left us to speculate. That's why Jews never created a gap theory. And Jews had their oral tradition. When Moses would teach Genesis, they would share it with one another. You remember, they didn't have written copies, so Moses would speak, and their oral tradition was passed down from generation to generation. Certainly, I'm sure some extra things were added, but Jews never believed in a gap theory. In fact, Christians never believed in a gap theory. No one for 1,900 years of church history. And so those Christians who came from Jesus, from the apostles, all the church fathers who are closest to the apostles and all the writings that they left us, no one taught a gap theory. Second, again, Genesis 1.31 says, all that God made was very good, which if sin had already entered into the world through Satan during this gap, God could not say that. And if the fossil record is to be explained by this gap, understand there are other ways in which to explain the fossil record. But this is what you're doing. Here's the fundamental uh, error in this teaching, is you have now death and animals who, great dinosaurs, and I have no problem with believing in dinosaurs. I have a whole sermon on dinosaurs. And if you haven't explored that, you need to be able to answer that for your children. Get the Search the Scriptures app at the App Store and listen to the early chapters of Genesis. And I walked through the whole thing with dinosaurs. Dinosaurs were created on the same day that God created man. They walked together at one time during the earth. But listen, if you have this death and disease and all these problems before man fell, then you're contradicting what God says. God says that death came into the world as a result of sin. Romans 5, 12 says, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. There was no death before sin entered into the world. And so the belief that the world is billions of years old certainly cannot even be accounted for by adding up the genealogies in Genesis, even if you are extremely generous with those. So that's one way. A second way that people try to make the Bible palatable with science is they don't say that there's a gap of time between Genesis 1 1 and 1, 2, and then six literal days of creation that followed. They say that there are gaps of time between each day of creation. And they basically interpret the days of Genesis 1 not as literal as Tim Keller just told us, but as figurative. And those who take the days of Genesis 1 as figurative fall within three positions. Think your way through this. Some argue for what we call the day-age theory. And this position just says that the days of Genesis were long days, extended period of times, and so now you can come up with a world that's millions or billions of years old. And they try to argue from the Hebrew that the word yom, translated day, can be used in Scripture to refer to an indefinite period of time. And they're right, it can be used in Scripture to refer to an indefinite period of time. For instance, sometimes the Hebrew word yom can be used figuratively 
uh, not of a literal 24-hour day, but actually literally, I shouldn't say figuratively, of daylight. For instance, in Genesis 1-5, God called the light yom, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, there was morning, one day. So there are several usages of the word yom or day. Sometimes it refers to daylight, or sometimes it refers to an indefinite period of time, like in Isaiah 4, verse 2. In that day, speaking of the Messiah, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. He's talking about that time when Messiah Jesus will reign upon the earth. In that day, it's an indefinite period of time. In Isaiah's day, it's defined literally in Revelation as a thousand years. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 7, in the day of prosperity. Again, the word there, day, refers to a general inclusive period of time. Like in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, Moses used it inclusively when he said, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made heaven, made earth and heaven. Here Moses is summing up the creation account, and he's referring to an inclusive period of time, namely six days in the context. Sometimes we use it that way. We speak of the day of your youth. We're not saying you were a youth for one day, but you were a youth over a period of time. And so when we are talking about the Hebrew word day, we cannot categorically say that in every instance it refers to a 24-hour day. But just because yom does not categorically in every instance not refer to a 24-hour day, it doesn't dismiss the fact that 99% of the time it does. I'll come to that. Still others, they would make the days of Genesis very long by appealing to a verse like Psalm 90, verse 4. There the psalmist says, Moses wrote, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. Or they might appeal to 2 Peter 3, 8, but do not let this one effect one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, of course, if you make this verse to say one day is a thousand years, and therefore it could be 10,000 years or 20,000 years or a long period of time, the second half of the verse cancels it out. Because a thousand years, he said, can be as one day. But listen, why not apply that figurative concept to other places in the Bible where the word yom is used. Do you know that if you were to say even a day was a thousand years, that Jonah, you could argue, was in the belly of the great fish for 3,000 years? You could say that Jesus was in the tomb for 3,000 years and he hadn't even yet risen from the dead. There's no reason to take the days of Genesis 1 as figurative rather than literal. So some take the day-age theory. Others have taught literal days with gaps within them. And there's real problems with that, especially by the manner in which God unfolds the creation. Look at your text, Genesis 1, verse 3. God creates light on the first day. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Then he adds in verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning one day. Now, the sun had not yet been created, but God wants to underscore the creation of light on the first day, that that had taken place, and how appropriate, because God is light, and this is certainly his creation. 
But this expression, there was evening and there was morning, one day is used at the conclusion of all six days. In every place outside of Genesis it is used, it refers to a literal 24-hour day. Look at verse 6. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God separates the atmospheric waters from the terrestrial waters, and he creates this expanse we call it sky today. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, there was morning, a second day. Verse 9, then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now notice how he fills this empty earth. Then God said, verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, planting plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, a third day. But not only does God fill the land with vegetation, now God fills the sky with planets. Look at verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light, to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. By the way, how did Moses know that the sun called here the greater light was bigger than the moon here called the lesser light when science for thousands of years came to the opposite conclusion? If you saw the harvest moon last month we had in September, it was magnificent. It seemed like it was eight feet wide compared to the sun that's a foot wide. How did Moses know that? When all of the cultures for thousands of years said that the sun was smaller than the moon. And now science tells us that you can fit six million moons within the sun. How did he know it? Because he's writing with full accuracy under the inspiration of the Spirit. And then he adds in the verse, he made the stars also, almost like a footnote. And now we know there are more stars in space than there are sand on the seashores of the world. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, a fourth day. Here on the fourth day, God creates the sun that is necessary to sustain the vegetation. Now, please do not confuse the light that he creates on day one with the sun that he creates on day four. This is the first time there is sunlight, and sunlight is necessary to sustain plant life. And so if you make these days as long geological ages, if you have millions of years between the days, you have a total impossibility because all the plant life that God creates on day three are dead by the time he creates the sun to make photosynthesis necessary. Not to mention, when the birds and the animals are created on day five and six, there would be no plant life to support them. And remember, before the great flood, or actually before the fall, animals didn't eat meat, and man didn't eat meat until after the fall. For that matter, if all the plants and the trees were dead, then how would Adam initially eat 
because he couldn't eat meat. Look at verse 20. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the water swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful. God commands his creation. I love it. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, there was morning, a fifth day. And by the way, if the insects that are created on day five, if there's billions of years between the days, then how could the plants on top of that survive without being pollinated by the insects? You see, God so constructed the creation accounts that you can't come up with the nonsense. It's either true just like he said it, or it's not true at all. That brings me to the third point. See there on your outline. It is correct to say that God created in six consecutive 24-hour days. Now, I don't believe that we need to make the Bible fit into any current scientific theories. I believe God made the world in six consecutive 24-hour days that were regular 24-hour days with no gaps of time between them for at least five reasons. Some I've already mentioned. First, I can believe it because God is God. Is there anything too difficult for God? It's asked in Genesis 18. It's not difficult for me to believe that God could create the world in six days or in six seconds or in no time at all as he appears to do in Genesis 21. And if you believe the opening verses of Scripture, Barashid bara Elohim, in the beginning created God, then you can believe everything that follows. There's a second reason for believing in six consecutive solar days, because again, the way the creation count is numbered. Verse 5, there was evening, there was morning, one day. Verse 8, there was evening and morning. A second day. Verse 13, evening and morning, a third day. Verse 19, evening and morning, a fourth day. Verse 23, evening and morning, a fifth day. And then finally in verse 31, and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. By the way, whenever in Scripture you have the word yom day accompanied with a number, and there are 410 other places in the Old Testament of which no one debates... It refers to a literal 24-hour day. And when you add to that morning and evening, you have a double affirmation that he is speaking of a literal 24-hour solar day. And fourth or third, again, that's evening and morning. Again, a principle that speaks of a solar day. Fourth, you've got real problems in how the creation count unfolds if there's long gaps of time. But fifth, the most convincing reason for taking these as 24-hour days is because sometimes God himself gives divine commentary within the Scripture. Like if I want to know about a particular Old Testament passage and I see Jesus commented on it. If God in human flesh comments on some Old Testament passage, I want to know what he said. Because everything he said is true and he can't misinterpret the text. And we find Moses commenting on the days of creation. Put out on the margin, if you would, um, uh, out next to um, 
verse 5, write Exodus 20, Exodus 20, uh, 8 and 11. Exodus 20, 8 and 11. Put that out in the margin next to verse 5. And let me read these verses because God totally eliminates the so-called gap theory, the long day theory, or anything else you can think of when he says this. God said in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the uh, the Sabbath of the Lord your God. What's the reason for that? Listen to what he says in verse 11. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Do you see what he's saying? It is plain. It is clear. Moses, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, believed that the world was made in six literal days. And the way God created the world in six literal days becomes a model for man resting in one and seven. God's given us divine commentary. Now, listen, the concept of a year being approximately 365 days long can be established outside of the Scripture. Because that's the time frame it takes for the earth to make a full rotation around the sun. The concept of a 24-hour day can be established outside of the scripture because that's the time it takes for the earth to make one full uh, revolution on its axis. But the concept of a week is established by God himself in the scripture itself. God reveals the concept of a week, not science. In six days, he created the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested ipso facto. In six days, you work. And in one day, you rest and refresh. These are unbroken six literal consecutive days, just like the work week. And so when Pat Robertson or Tim Keller or the Pope of Rome, or anyone else you can think of, undermines the historicity of Genesis chapter 1, Satan has won a victory. If we can't believe what God says in Genesis 1 about creation, then why should we believe what he says about gender distinction in Genesis 1? If Genesis 1 can't be believed concerning creation, then why can we trust the rest of the Bible when he addresses salvation? And if we can't believe what God says about the earth in Genesis 1, then why should we believe what God says about the earth in, Genesis, in Revelation 21? If the first chapter can't be believed, if it all can't be believed, then none of it can be believed. If the Holy Spirit does not infallibly, inerrantly, authoritatively inspire the opening chapter of Scripture, then what makes you think he inspired John 3.16? So how are we going to apply this? We're going to spend, like I say, three, four, maybe five weeks on this creation that God is going to unfold for us here in the Revelation. We've just cracked the door, but let me make some application as I finish. Number one, you should teach your children that evolution ridicules God's greatness. The Pat Robertsons, the Tim Kellers of the world who are trying to make peace with evolutionary science are undermining the faith of your children. They are contributing to driving them away from the faith on three levels. Number one, evolution ridicules God's great word. These men with the 
evolutionists are undermining the six miraculous days of creation and therefore the authority of God's Word. You should teach your children that the Bible is authoritative, not to mention just on sheer logic. Who would want to believe the theory of evolution? Now, I know there are varieties of evolutionists today, but still in its basic form, they still ascribe to the origin of the species. Not every dimension of it, but the basic argument that Darwin posits in these words are still believed. Darwin writes, analogy would lead me to believe that all animals and plants are descended from the same prototype. All organisms start from a common origin, and from such low and intermediate forms, both animals and plants have been developed. All the organic things which have been on the earth may be descended from some one primordial source. See, the evolutionist says way back yonder, way back in the beginning, there was some little blob of life, however it came about, some amoeba type of life. And that one-celled piece of life became a worm. And then that worm eventually became a fish. And that fish finally became an amphibian. And that amphibian eventually grew wings and became a bird. And that bird became a mammal. And that mammal became a monkey. And that monkey became a man. That's what they want you to believe. Out of the glue into the zoo, that became you. Listen, you should teach your kids it takes more faith to believe the monkey story than what God has recorded here in his word. Once I was a tadpole beginning to begin. Then I was a frog with my tail tucked in. Then I was a monkey in a banyan tree, and now I'm a professor with a PhD. That's what they want you to believe. That's how it happened all by chance. Listen, it undermines the authority of God's Word. Secondly, evolution ridicules God's power. It ridicules His power. Paul will write in Romans 1 that for many people, the creation has become their God instead of the God who made the creation. So he says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. How? Being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Paul's argument is that creation itself reveals a creator. We know with every design, there's a designer. With every law, there's a lawmaker. In the beginning, God created is still the most up-to-date theory of how we are here. And so he then adds, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they came futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Oh, they may have several letters after their name. But God puts fool after their name. Why? Because they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That is precisely what evolution is. It's just a form of idolatry where man worships their gases and their amoebas and their worms instead of the living God. And so verse 25 of that chapter says, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Don't let anyone fool you. Evolution here in the 24th century is just a modern form of idolatry. And when a nation, when a people, when a world refuses to acknowledge God as God, Paul says God gives him over to sensuality. 
God then gives him over to homosexuality. Then in phase three, God gives him over to a depraved mind. You could render it an upside-down mind where men call good evil and evil good, and that's where we are today. And so the wicked governor of North Carolina just signed a bill saying, on the day your baby is born, you can kill that child. That is wickedness. That is fallenness. That is an upside-down mind. Listen to Genesis 1 and verse 11. It brings me to my third point. Evolution ridicules God's design. It ridicules God's design. Listen to this verse. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them on the earth. And it was so. That phrase, after their kind, I have it underlined all the way through this chapter. Look at verse 12. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, with seed in them after their kind. He repeats himself in verse 21. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the water swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. Verse 24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. Ten times over, he repeats the phrase, after their kind. Cats reproduce cats. Apples reproduce apples. People reproduce peoples. This is a law that God wrote into the creation, not by Mother Nature, but by Father God. And there's not a single shred of evidence that things can cross over and reproduce. Now, if you grew up on a farm and you had mules, you know that a mule is a cross between a donkey and a horse. But a mule cannot reproduce because it's a hybrid. He cannot reproduce because God wrote within his creation that plants and animals can only reproduce after their kind. Now, certainly you can cross-germinate some roses and get different colors, but that's not evolution. That's mutation. That it's a mutation. It's not transmutation. You can't take a flower and cross it with a tomato. You can't take a rose and cross it with a pineapple. We may breed different kinds of cattle, but we cannot breed a cow into a reindeer over and over after their kind. And so first, your children need to see the greatness of God is a reason to reject evolution. Secondly, teach your children the implications of embracing evolution. And there are three that I want to underscore, and I'm done. First, there are hermeneutical Implication. Hermeneutics is a 50 cent word for interpretation. It's the science of interpretation. Help your children to understand that Tim Keller and the Pope and Pat Robertson and liberal Protestants have interpreted the Bible in a way they have no right to interpret it. How do I know how to interpret the Bible? God left within the scriptures itself how to interpret the scripture. He creates these different prophets who interface with other prophets. And how do they interpret each other? How does Jesus interpret the Old Testament? In the plain, historical, literal, grammatical sense. Listen, when the good sense, when, when the plain sense makes good sense, you should seek no other sense. Otherwise, you come up with nonsense. In anyone reading at face value the days of creation as they did for 1900 years without any dispute 
can only come up with six literal days of creation. But to make the Bible fit into modern science, one needs to abandon the principles on how to interpret the Scripture. You have to allegorize the Scripture. Listen, if it's not all true, it's not true at all. So there are huge hermeneutical implications. Secondly, there are historical implications. If the days of creation cannot be taken as historical as actually true, then what other historical facts are erroneous? If evolution is correct, then Adam and Eve, as Keller admits, were not our first parents of the human race, though Jesus believed they were. And if they weren't our first parents, then there was no Garden of Eden. And if there was no Garden of Eden, then there was no devil there to tempt man. And if there was no devil to tempt man, then man never fell into sin from perfection. And if there was no first couple and no devil to tempt him, then Jesus coming in the world to die for our sin is a total farce. Jesus understood Adam as literal, as actual, just like he did Noah with a real flood. To teach your children to embrace evolution, there's hermeneutical implications, there's historical implications. Finally, there are spiritual implications, and they are great. I believe here in Genesis chapter 1 and in Revelation 21 that God not only tells us something about the origin of the species, but he tells us something about the destiny of the species. Throughout Genesis, throughout Revelation, God reveals that man has a need, that man has chosen to rebel against the holy God. But you see, the evolutionist, he says we just have, you know, glandular malfunctions, and that what we need is not a birth from above, but a boost from below, that the man is just going to get better and better and better as he evolves through time, but there is not one shred of 6,000 years of recorded history, which, by the way, is all the recorded history we have, which might imply something. There's not one shred of evidence that man is getting better. History itself diametrically opposes what the evolutionist is saying. You see, he wants you to believe it's billions of years old because that really distances God from his creation. He's not up close and personal. There's no accountability. It's man suppressing the truth about God that he has revealed. Uh, by the time we're done, I think, with chapters 21 and 22, you're going to be so excited about this new heaven and this new earth and the new Jerusalem that's going to come down, you won't be able to contain yourself. But let me just say, for you to be on this new earth and in this new city, you need Jesus. And the devil wants to undermine his redemption but the creation is found in Genesis 1, shouts that God created a perfect world, but man freely chose to rebel against God, but God loved us so much He sent a Redeemer so we could be forgiven and we can have a place prepared for us. Are you ready to die? You're not ready to live until you're ready to die. And unless you know that you know on the basis of what God reveals in Scripture that heaven is your home, you need to make a big, big decision and call upon Christ. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Every head bowed, every eye closed. 
Maybe you are here today and you're not sure that heaven is your home because you're not sure you're good enough. Well, you're not. None of us are. We're all sinners. We all need forgiveness. And there's only one who can forgive you, and his name is Jesus. And if you will call upon his name today, he will give you the gift of God, which is eternal life. But you must come not on the basis of what you think, but on what God has revealed in the Bible. The Bible is either all true or it's not true at all. But listen, it is alive. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. That's why if you've never even read the apologetics on why the Bible is true, you can know it's true because it speaks to the heart like no other book. The Book of Mormon, the Upanishads, the Vedas, the Quran, none of those books are inspired any more than the statements that the Pope of Rome has made. Only the Scripture is true. And God says the one who believes in the Son has life. The one who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on him. Would you in childlike faith say, Lord Jesus, on the basis of your death, burial, and resurrection, forgive me and change me. If you will take God at his word, he'll save you today. Now, Father, we have people who have entered right in the front door of the church who are undermining the plain truth of Scripture. And you told us in the last days that men would depart from the faith, that they would come into the church and they would be unnoticed because they look so Christian. So help us to be discerning. Help us to be wise as parents and grandparents to teach what you have plainly revealed, the very truths that will be undermined in the hearts of our children across America this week. Help us to show our children why we believe what we believe and that you are a reasonable God who has given us a reasonable book that needs to be fully embraced. You have entrusted to us people that you have called to shepherd some fellow adults, some little children. Help us to do it well, and by your grace, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And maybe you're here and you have a decision to make. You've never publicly confessed Jesus as Lord. That's what this time is for. You're leaving your seat and coming to this front row is saying, I'm not ashamed to say that Christ has saved me. We just baptized three people in the last service, and by symbol, they were saying their faith is in the death, burial, and resurrection. Have you ever done that since you've been saved? I want to invite you to take that step. Or maybe you're a believer, you're saved and baptized, but you need a local church. If we can be that church, we invite you to leave as well. So as Matt leads us, if you have a decision to make, step out now and meet me here in the front.